Hi, everybody. Welcome back on the Blockworks Macro channel. This is Alf speaking. And today's guest is a uh, Twitter rising star. His name is Mr. Blonde Macro on Twitter. If you don't follow him, go follow him anyway, because he's great. Hey, Mr. Blonde, how are you doing? I'm great, Alf. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, especially as yesterday we had a Fed meeting, which turned out to be relatively interesting, or at least market reaction straight away was pretty impressive measured in volatility adjusted terms. So I want to start from there and uh, give an audience your take on what Powell basically said yesterday. Yeah. So, you know, look, I, I should caveat that, you know, in, in the way I approach markets in my framework, I don't put too much weight um, on any, you know, single Fed meeting um, or, you know, certainly any single comment from a central bank official. I mean, I try to uh, certainly try to take into account what they're thinking and saying, but um, you know my framework is, is is very much cyclical growth focused and looking out beyond um, a given meeting. I, I think I don't. I guess my conversations with with market participants, it didn't seem like many were actually expecting seventy five basis point rate hikes. But so I'm a little bit surprised that the, that the market was, um, you know, you know, took that part and ran with it. I, I think. If you look at pricing, it didn't seem like it doesn't seem like Fed uh, funds pricing changed all that dramatically. Um, so I get it. I mean, I guess it. It you know we we kind of cut off a little bit of the hawkish tail, um, but I'm not sure that it really changes the narrative all that much um, about where the, the direction that the Fed is heading um, and the need to you know lean against inflation. Um, you know, certainly you know Powell is a little bit more um, relaxed about it, um, and that's soothing. Uh, I'm not sure, and I think you wrote about this. Uh, I'm not sure that that will prove to be um, the best tactic uh, in fighting inflation over the course of the next couple of months. So I, I would say I, I understand the the market reaction and the excitement uh, doesn't change the big picture view uh, and where I think we'll head up. You know where we'll head in six months. Um, so inclined to you know kind of lean into you know fade it a little bit, um, but but not aggressively. You know recognizing you know sentiment. So what I found interesting was a couple of things that he said. Uh, when he cuts out the risk of a 75 basis point hike, either in June or in the next meetings, it basically truncates the distribution of future outcomes that are possible, right? And that normally, he did that in March already. That generally helps people to have a better understanding of the path ahead, lowers a bit implied volatility temporarily. People can buy more stocks, can feel a bit more aggressive. But what he also said was that um, you know, the Fed is fine in doing consecutive 50 basis point hikes at the end of the day, assuming that financial conditions will move according to expectations. And it sounds like he's trying to navigate a bit this financial conditions tightening while looking very serious about inflation. But which of the two, Mr. Blonde? I mean, he, ca he can't achieve both, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. And I think that this is sort of also why we're in an environment where, you know, you you're inclined to fade rallies because to your point, I mean, financial conditions tightening is a key part of what the Fed needs to do in order to, you know, get a handle on things. So that puts a ceiling on, on risk, uh, right. And, and how far it can go. So, you know, look, obviously we can, um, you know, we could trade down and we can bounce and, and, and whatnot, but that gets back to the point of, you know, what kind of, um, you know, you know, how much risk do you want to take in, in your portfolio, knowing that the Fed is, is there to kind of, you know, lean against you, uh, if it, if it goes too far, I I think the other um, the other aspect that that I thought was that's that's important is you know he talked about the you know, he's still kind of talking about the idea of a soft landing, but he's he's not at all committed to it, right? So um, and I think that's a you know maybe a recognition of 
um, you know, the, the difficulty, you know, ahead in, in fighting inflation, you know, in the context of tightening on financial conditions and knowing that there's a, this is the cost benefit analysis, right? The Bernanke used to talk about it in a different way, but this is, you know, the cost associated with, with, you know, um, you know, hitting of inflation is likely to be a, a much more difficult, uh, you know, growth outcome and, than, than they would desire. Yeah. And interestingly, markets are like, Yesterday, they reacted, uh, making financial conditions very loose all of a sudden. So you had the dollar down, you had equities up, credit spreads tighter, the whole bunch that the Fed doesn't want to see happening, right? Including inflation expectations shooting higher after the meeting. Today, though, it seems like markets are having already second thoughts. So all, all of the moves yesterday are getting reversed. So ultimately, do you think the market believes uh, that the Fed can achieve somehow both so making only a gentle tightening of financial conditions while lowering inflation expectations, or they're going to force Powell basically to choose between the two? I mean, I think there are certainly people out there who believe that they will, but I think it's, I think the outcome will be the latter. Um, uh, so, you know, and I think that that's just, you know, a function of, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a piece um, late last year called Don't Fight the Fed, you know, on the, on the Substack and sort of reviewed all of the, you know, historical Fed rate hike cycles. And, and I think that, you know, one of the key takeaways from that is that during the early phases of, of tightening or, you, um, or when they start the process of tightening, markets are always um, volatile and, and skittish and sort of you kind of go into these really wide, you know, trading ranges, which is, is not uncharacteristic of an environment where you're sort of, you know, draining liquidity. Now, now typically in a Fed cycle, you're also in a much earlier stage of the economic cycle and have, you know, a lot more growth to help offset, you know, the inevitable valuation compression. But, you know, point being that I think that, that volatility is something that we should expect to hang around uh, for some time until we start to see, you know, kind of, for a lack of a better term, the fruits of fruits of the labor from the from the tightening, right? That you start to see inflation come down, uh, you know, growth rates come down and you get a better sense of the the severity of 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 those uh, of that direction or the trajectory in those um, indicators, um, and and we're further along in the cycle. And then obviously, you know, we and we we've talked about this and we've seen it out there. But I mean, there's also a pretty big difference between um, slow, moderate cycles and and fast cycles, and and this certainly um, you know is a is a fast cycle uh, in terms of its magnitude, and that you know that's always a, a more severe outcome. So, I think volatility volatility is the one thing that we can be sure. Um, can be sure of. Yeah. So let's start and zoom back from the Fed meeting to your overall macro understanding, because you are very good at identifying turning points in the macro cycle. And those turning points generally take a couple of months or quarters to unfold. And the Blockworks macro interviews I'm doing are rather educational zoom out interviews than only uh, focus on a topic. So what do you see happening over the next few quarters? What's your macro uh, assessment big picture here? Yeah, this is, um, you know, I think that this is an important point and, you know, and, and, a, and a key part of, of how I, um, you know, face markets, which is, you, you know, I start with it, you know, having a macro growth, you know, kind of framework and thought process. And it's, it's largely cyclical driven. It's not, you know, typical, it's not like potential growth or, you know, the, the really long term growth measures. It's, it's shorter term in, in nature. But I have a good chart um, that I think, you know, kind of represents uh, this framework for me, it's called the the macro growth composite um, in the slides that I sent you. Um, yeah. And that composite is really is is has heavily focused on um, profit growth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm a I'm a you know, 
equity investor, so you know, profit growth matters to me. I don't really care about GDP growth, and we don't have to get into that today. But that doesn't drive my thought process. But you know, my and my macro growth composite is just a mix of different indicators, kind of a long indicator, a medium indicator, and a sort of a short indicator of of profit. Um, you, you know, the cyclical profit growth, and and on all those measures, we're we're you know we're in a slowdown mode, right? I mean, we've peaked, and and growth is slowing. Uh, and my framework suggests to me that you'll come the second half of this year and into the um, first quarter of 2023, that that macro growth composite will dip into sort of negative territory. Uh, and as it pertains to profit growth, you know, you know, U.S. profit growth uh, in particular, that that looks like it will be negative um, in the early part of 2023. And I think markets will struggle, um, you know, as they as they see that. Uh, and you know, markets are you know, tend to be a little bit forward-looking. You'll call it six to nine months, and so I think that's a, that'll be a big part of the second half of this year. Um, and so I think you know, to, to to kind of you know under you know underscore this, the way that I've tried to explain equity markets and earnings growth to sort of a fixed income you know macro investor like yourself is to think about earnings growth as a form of carry. So when earnings growth is rising, or you have an upward sloping uh, EPS curve, meaning EPS next year is higher than EPS this year. Uh, you know, you want to buy steep yield curves, right? So, um, in the context of 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 equity markets, you want to buy steep EPS curves uh, if they exist. But if that EPS curve is flattening, or you have a situation where growth is slowing and or revisions are negative, then equity markets no longer have the positive carry attributes that they would typically have. And I think that's how that's how we should think about it, right? The carry in the equity markets is actually um, you know, pretty flat right now, and I think will be you know turn negative as as the year progresses. If that helps to absolutely frame the debate, it's it's great framing. And actually, if I think of earnings like carry, and I think that um, looking at your framework, basically you're talking about earnings growth which is going to disappoint on the downside. The other reason why um, people tend to buy equities is because of valuation expansion, multiple expansions, right? So maybe the return is going to come from there. Open question to you. The reason I frame earnings as a form of carry is because what, what most equity analysts will do is they'll model earnings and then their valuation assumption is flat, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's the PE multiple is basically unchanged, you know, from point to point. And the community is generally not good at forecasting valuation it's it's difficult because it's the residual by definition it's you know you know very much you know sentiment but it also has um you know and this is more of a macro equity perspective i mean valuation is also very dependent on the regime and the environment that you're in sure. so if you're in a high inflation regime all else equal valuation is lower valuation is lower partly because typically in a high inflation regime the fed is is a, is a much more proactive and you know, raising discount rates and that that leans against valuation, but it's also lower because high inflation regimes, all else equal, um, up, you know, apply margin pressure on corporates, right? Um, and so um, margins and valuations are um, you know, typically move together. So, no, I don't think that um, I don't think that it's sensible to expect that you're, you're going to get any. Um, you know, any benefit from valuation expansion over the next, you know, uh, 12 months, certainly not as long as the Fed is, you know, in the early stages of their hiking cycle, and, and we still have to calibrate, you know, what happens. But then also the other the other factor is as, as growth slows, and as the market comes to appreciate that growth, you know, could be negative in 2023, that's not an environment to, to pay a higher multiple for stocks. 
Um, and then the last point, and I'm sorry, I didn't include a chart on this, but it's in, you know, on my Twitter feed and, and in the Substack notes. I think the other thing that, that I'm personally struggling with a little bit is that when we look at valuation, we're also dealing you know, in an environment in a period of time where um, EPS or earnings are, are well above trend. And so you have a, a situation where you know, it's hard to trust that level of valuation given how um, extended earnings are uh, relative to their you know, whatever 20 you know, plus year trend. Uh, that's a pretty unique set of circumstances. Yeah. So the um, natural question I have is if you have an overall negative assessment of where earnings are going in your base case against where analysts expect earnings to print at the end of the year, and you also don't expect valuation to help the um, overall equity market, then I have to assume overall you want to be bearish here. But we're talking about indexes, right? I mean, macro indexes. Is there um, a certain sector of the equity market that maybe looks like an overweight against something that looks like an underweight to you? This is a good point. I mean, I think um, there's two things. One is you know, S&P 500 is the most commonly cited and referred to index and, and for good reason, you know, big liquid U.S. market. But it's important to recognize and appreciate by definition, it's also one of the most resilient, you know, um, you know portfolios in the market. Uh, it's a good mix of cyclical defensive growth value, um, obviously has big liquid brand name companies, you know, um, so it's, it's, not, it's not the ideal instrument to use to short. Um, I mean, I do think that it will continue to come under pressure for the reasons that that I said before. And we're at a stage in the cycle as you move later and later in the you know in the cycle, it, you know, increasingly it becomes a broad market issue, not just a sector issue. Um, but look, I I would say that I continue to think that you know consumer facing um, you know stocks will will come under pressure. I mean, so for me, you know, for most of the last year, I've 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 favored to you know kind of be short or significantly underweight like consumer cyclicals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, XRT would be the 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 benchmark ETF that you know kind of encompasses this, and and that's actually very typical and, and consistent with Fed cycles. Um, but it also I think represents you know some of the tension points you know, that we have today, which is you know high commodity prices, you know higher financing rates, uh, things of that nature. So I, I think a, a, a broad basket of consumer cyclicals that ranges from you know, specialty retailer, you know, including home builders, probably still as long as the rate cycle is where it is uh, and activity slows um, and other consumer durables, you know, like autos, um, you're all, you know, probably good places to, to target um, on the short side. And then if I really have to try and test you on the long side, what would you want to try and be long anything here? I'm going to, you know, kind of show my stripes a little bit. I, I tend to be somebody who's, you know, primarily attracted to what I would call, you know, um, high quality, profitable growth companies. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, you know, I think, you know, obviously you have to be cognizant of valuation, but, you know, more often than not, it's a situation you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you pay for a company that has high gross margins, Stability and growth, gross margins, or stability in the you know in in profit uh, profitability, I think that those are the features that you want in a you know in an environment where um, inflation pressures um, you know are, are kind of lingering. Um, it's hard to put it into a specific you know kind of ETF. I mean, for sure, you know, tech as a broad category you know has those characteristics. I mean, tech obviously is a you know, is a, is a space right now that's pretty controversial um, because of rates. I, I kind of think that that can subside later this year. 
um, as you know, as I talked about, this growth is slowing, inflation is coming down, and maybe we have a better handle on on where the you know the kind of the Fed cycle ends up. Um, I would you know I think it's important to be you know kind of selective within that space. I, I, one of the trades that I've suggested is to be long um, software and short semis, mm-hmm. um, which I think you know kind of is a little bit of a play on long the you know kind of stable profitability recurring revenue type you know business software obviously i think also benefits an environment where corporates are looking for more productivity and to get more out of their labor you know in the context of you know rising wages and i think semis are, are a group that are cyclically vulnerable um to uh you know the, the retracement and payback on consumer goods consumption that we've seen over the last couple of years um and so you know i kind of i kind of like that pair it's kind of a you know, a little bit of a cop out, but I guess if if you wanted to take from that, you would say that you know I want to be long, you know, software stocks from here, um, you know, and I'd be I'd be comfortable be long software and short consumer cyclicals. I'm okay with that that construct. That's pretty similar to what my portfolio looks like. Uh, if we move away from talking about the Fed and the stock market, you look at um, overall global macro, I should say, or broad macro asset classes. Is there anything that really um, talks to you at this stage in terms of risk reward or anything very interesting you see in currencies, commodities, gold, or other asset classes? I, I think the the thing that's interesting to me right now is actually kind of the 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 divergence between credit risk premium and equity risk premium. It sort of it leans me to think that there's better if you want to if you want to take long risk today and you're comfortable with the growth outlook. And you're comfortable with you know inflation and the Fed, and you're getting comfortable with those things. I think that you're, I think you're getting you're getting compensated well on a relative basis. You're compensated to take that risk in credit more than you're compensated to take that risk in equity. Mm-hmm. Now it's a little bit tricky because you know in credit obviously you have a fixed income stream, and equities you have a variable income stream, and so there's an element of that 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 makes sense. But um, it's a pretty it's a you know at least over the last ten to fifteen years pretty. Um, notable gap between those two markets, and I think that that kind of dovetails you know, with what you asked before about valuation. I mean, when I look at this, that it makes me think that you know equity is a little rich relative to um, the set of you know macro conditions, um, you know, and that's you know that can happen in short periods of time. But you know, so that that's interesting to me. I, I don't know that I know exactly you know um, what to do with it at this stage, but um, it's certainly on my radar. And then the other thing I would say is. And you know, I'm a tourist in, in your space, but I, I, I'm I'm attracted to the idea of, of this is for me anyway, the first time in a few years, you know, adding some long duration to the portfolio. Um, I think it it has to be sort of measured uh and is um, you know, it, it, the sizing at this stage is is pretty light. But with the idea that come, you know, kind of September of this year, that the market narrative is quite different and we have a much better handle on um where we are in the Fed cycle and the market will start looking into 2023. And if I'm right about the growth cycle and the, the sort of the, the rising risk and concern around recession, then maybe we end up with a more volatile Fed cycle and, and they end up having to cut in 2023, um, which would be sooner than, than I think is currently expected. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I like that idea. I mean, so far for me, that's a pretty small measured trade and something like TLT call spreads. Mm-hmm. You know, you warned me against it, and it's, it's currently a little painful, but it's okay. I mean, I think it's it's. I'm trying to think six months out. 
Yes. And indeed, uh, time horizons are very important. We discussed it before the interview. Uh, many people on Twitter who are fighting on the same trade and perhaps they just have a different time horizon. It's important to specify indeed uh, what your regime time horizon is in your, uh, in your assessment. Um, you talked about credit and I, um, I have a question there. So if the Federal Reserve is looking to tighten financial conditions, I think they told us pretty clearly that they want that to happen to slow demand. If I look at the components of financial condition index, there are generally three or four well-known interest rates, uh, equity, credit spreads, and the dollar. Uh, do you think they have any preference in targeting specifically one of those, although they'll never admit it, but do you think there is a channel that they would prefer going there? My sense is that the most effective form of financial conditions tightening uh, from their standpoint would be one that impacts sort of all of those areas uh, to some degree to help um, create a more balanced attack on financial conditions tightening mm. rather than and probably an undesirable outcome would be if all of the financial conditions tightening was happening in one specific bucket, which you know I think could you know, could be ineffective or less effective, but also, you know, potentially damaging to that particular market or disruptive to that particular market. So look, I, I made this point on a on a Twitter post that I think is is something that maybe doesn't get quite enough attention, but you know, the dollars moved quite a bit recently. Yeah. Yes. And and I, you know, I happen to think that that's an important part of, you know, financial conditions tightening because it's um it's a it's a fairly blunt instrument and and has and is pretty far reaching into a, you know all the little cracks. And I think that you know, is the, if the dollar's stronger, it has uh, inflation, you know, it, you know, fighting, you know, implications. It also impacts growth because you know your the the cost of 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 doing something, um, you know, changes. It changes the valuation profile of your capital markets. Um, so I think that that's pretty important um, development. Uh, you know, it's kind of been ongoing, but it, the pace has picked up. Um, but I think that that's also a reason to think that maybe the idea of like, you know, all of the tightening have to be, you know, having to be done in rates, uh, you know, th that that view might be missing something if you're if we're not also considering the dollar in that equation. And that's a very smart point. I, I also yesterday put out a chart from Bloomberg that shows that the trade weighted dollar has moved over the last 20 days, I think by four and a half, five percent. And uh, if you look at a 20 day rolling move over the last 20 years, it's actually pretty rare to see such a move in trade with a dollar in such a short amount of time. It is a uh, wrecking ball basically for many levered emerging markets or corporates that are levered in dollars. They see global mm -hmm. trade slowing down. They need to refinance maybe the liabilities. They have less, less access to dollar um, trades or dollar profits in general. And so they have a, you know, basically they, they need to scramble back to the dollar. Plus there is the interest rate differential story that we all know and all of that. It's, a, it's an important remark. There is the last question I have for this interview covers one market that you have been relatively vocal about and you still are, which is the housing market. And so the housing market is not in the financial condition index, uh, in most financial conditions index. Surprisingly. Uh, surprisingly, because it is the biggest asset class in the world. Um, but so can you explain your stance on the housing market? I, I think rates and and the and the lowering of mortgage rates over the you know um into you know into through the you know COVID, you know, you know, you know, response in you know 2021, 20, you know, 2022, 2021 was a key um factor in what drove housing prices. Now, obviously, 
there was a bunch of other things and, you know, sentiment shift on, you know, work from home and, and, and other, you know, things, you know, the housing market, you know, was, had good macro fundamentals before COVID mm-hmm. and the things that happened and the policy response from COVID only accelerated and encouraged, um, you know, activity there. But I, I think one of the things that concerns me is that when you look at home prices across all different MSAs, you know, I had this, um, you know, chart in, in a note, but you had an extremely high correlation in a in a rising home price market. And I, when I think of correlation within markets, I always think of um, very high correlation as being an unhealthy, mm-hmm. uh, a measure of, you know, of, of, of something that's unhealthy. And so in this case, it was, it usually happens when prices are crashing, not when they're rising. But in this case, it suggests that the lowering of financing costs basically just pushed the prices of everything higher. So I don't think that that's, not, that, that's all that controversial. But I think what will happen now is that as mortgage rates rise and have risen significantly and quickly, um, we should see the correlation across different geographies and cities come down. Uh, and what will happen is in some, you know, I'll use U.S. as an example, but in some re, you know, MSAs, prices will fall because the fundamentals don't support it. Other MSAs will be okay and stay firm because the fundamentals do support it, whether that's you know, different forms of migration or whatever, you know, tax policy, other things in in that region. Um, and so that should create more dispersion. So I, I, my view is not so much that housing prices will come crashing down. I think they'll slow to a, to a crawl. Some regions will be negative. Some reason, regions will be positive and net at the national level would probably are like, you know, plus or minus a couple percent, but a very manageable, a manageable number where I think housing is more at risk is is in activity, sales, foot traffic, you know, um, transactions and things of that nature. Now that obviously can that, that can contribute to you know price degradation, but I think that that sort of is where like a, a lot of the activity that's happened was um, speculative in nature, and that can and that can change, including on the investor side. You know, look, a lot of people say like, oh, but all the investors, the investors. Well, now the investors have like viable liquid alternatives to return. They don't have to put their money in an you know illiquid you know piece of real estate, and instead they could buy corporate credit at four point seven five percent or or whatever. Like there's you know there's or they could buy mortgage you know MBS or something else that you know kind of has the same you know fundamental characteristics, but is liquid and spreads have widened. So I think that that's sort of that's kind of that's my thinking is that it will from this you know for the rest of this year will be about activity. Prices will kind of follow. I don't think that I don't think prices are gonna. I don't expect prices to crash. Certainly, don't expect them to crash, and and think that it will be you know kind of more of dispersion. Fundamental dispersion is is the story in housing, um, you know, across different regions. And what do you make of the um, tight supply or tight inventory story? Because that is the main argument that housing bulls and bulls, I mean, people that are expecting another double digit percentage price increase this year in US and in Europe actually always put forward. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, I, I think it's a little slippery because I, I feel like if you look at what I would call shadow inventory, so I've, I'm, I'm attracted to the idea that you have a lot of um, quote unquote homes under construction, mm-hmm. right? And this is like, to me, what you have to do and you know who does a good job of this is um, the calculated risk blog um, you know, has a, has a good chart, but if you look at homes under construction, oh, sorry, you look at homes for sale, mm-hmm. homes under construction, plus homes not yet started. If you look at those three categories and you add them all up, and then you look at inventories over time, inventories today have only ever been higher in the 2008 period. 
like 2006 to 7, 8, like that little, you know, surge in, in inventories. And my point on that is that there is a lot of what a quote unquote shadow inventory, inventory that's like a house that's under construction that's like missing a dishwasher because it's on a, a boat in Long Beach or whatever. But once that, you know, and you can't sell it until it's complete. But once that's complete, then it's, you know, now it moves to homes for, you know, homes for sale. And so that process can actually um, move pretty quickly. Now, then I think also important to consider the, the person who bought that house, if they were not a first time home buyer and they were, they were in an existing home. Now, when they go to move into their completed new home, they have an existing home to sell. And so, but now they're selling that existing home into a market where conditions are far less favorable than when they originally signed up to buy that new house. So I, I, I think that, that that dynamic and that process, and you know, I, I think we'll have to see how it plays out, but my sense is that there's, there's more inventory than often is stated when we look at you know, kind of a, a headline uh, metric like homes for sale. Um, you know, obviously, you know, people will disagree with that perspective, but I, I think that that's something that um, I'll be watching closely over the course of the next you know, six to nine months. I, I feel like inventory and supply is one of those things that's a little bit slippery, right? I mean, demand can kind of converge towards supply and all of a sudden supply cannot look so tight anymore. Um, yes. You know, when, when there's less, you know, when there's a little less demand. Indeed. So Mr. Blond, um, your measure takes are always appreciated. And I, uh, I'm pretty sure that the BlockWorks macro crowd here has uh, learned to like you if they didn't know you already, but if they want to follow more of your work, where can they find you? Sure. Well, I mean, Twitter is is like the 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 easy way um, for you know regular sound bites um, at Mr. Blonde underscore macro, uh, and then you know I write a, a Substack. I, I I try to keep it um, you know kind of every ten to fourteen days. You know my views don't change um, that frequently, um, but you can find me at Substack. It's stuck in the middle uh, at Substack, um, and um, thank you for having me and and uh, checking in. Well, Mr. Blonde, I can only uh, thank you for being here and I can suggest the audience to go and check your Substack. Absolutely awesome. We'll put it in the link notes as well. And if you like this kind of conversations, guys, subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro channel because you're going to be hearing more of those. Thanks, uh, Mr. Blonde, and talk soon. Great. Thank you. Thank you.